Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. All righty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have a really exciting founder, you know, a founder that, uh, you know, basically did, you know, most of his career in Wall Street. And, uh, you know, uh, then he decided to just go at it, you know, on his own back in 2008, around 2008. You know, what a, what a time to, to, uh, to get going. You know, incredible. Now, we're going to be talking about raising money, raising money not from the traditional PE or the VCs, but raising money from other sources and, and they've raised, you know, quite a bit. You know, we're talking about 1.5 billion already. So I think we're going to be learning again, you know, on everything that we like to hear, building, scaling, financing, ramping up and, and all the above. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Shiv Chatterjee. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Alejandro. Glad to be here. So originally you were born and raised in India. So give us a walk through memory lane. How was life growing up there? You know, I mean, I... Growing up in India was was pretty much growing up in India in the in the seventies eighties. Uh, lived in Delhi, uh, which is the capital for a large part of it, and uh, went to an all boys school. And uh, everything was focused around basically academics was a large part of what we did. Um, also decent decent extracurriculars, um, but uh, it was it was very much about getting getting the right grades and and uh, being prepared for uh, for college that was the focus growing up so in this case i mean college you know you decided to do applied mathematics and you came to harvard you know that's a long way all the way from india so how were you able to how did you manage to do that you know that's quite an accomplishment well i think i, I got very lucky because i happened to be in a school in which uh, i i had some role models uh, people in in years ahead of me, who had uh, who had done the same thing, and typically in India, the the career path or the academic path is to uh, you know take one of the large entrance exams, IIT, if you want to be an engineer, uh, or the medical entrance exams, and uh, and hope you succeed. And to me, that was really not a very attractive uh, proposition because uh, I, for one, I didn't really know what I wanted to do, so uh, you know. It's much easier if you're very, very sure that you want to be an engineer and you're very clear as to what you want to do. I did not. Uh, and so it, it didn't seem exciting to me to, to spend the kind of time and effort to uh, take the IIT entrance exam. Um, but then luckily, as I said, you know, when I was in the 11th grade, I discovered that there is a path to applying to U.S. universities. And uh, obviously, uh, growing up uh, very much middle class in India, uh, it would not have been possible for me to, or for my family to, to really contribute significantly to that education. But it also turned out that uh, I discovered that the U.S. universities are very generous uh, in, in their financial aid. And so uh, we had a group of kids all together who were all focused on kind of not doing the Indian higher education thing and trying to come to the U.S., and uh, and that's what we focused on for you know about eight months, and uh, eventually that ended up you know applying to the to the U.S. colleges. Uh, uh, got I was lucky enough to get accepted, lucky enough to receive significant financial aid, 
and uh, so ended up uh, ended up going to Harvard for undergrad. So how was like? I mean, was it much of a culture shock, you know, arriving there and looking around you and the American dream and and all that stuff or not? I think the culture shock was just how cold it was. Uh, you know, Boston gets really cold in the winter. Uh, we had, you know, 1992, I think, was one of the big uh, winter storms. And I remember, you know, uh, spring semester, my my freshman year, uh, there was a period of time, several weeks, when, when I didn't go to college, didn't go to any classes uh, because there was snow on the ground outside and it was really, really cold. And I... It was just not my thing. Um, so that was that was really the culture shock. Uh, other than that, you know, Cambridge is a gorgeous, wonderful place. Harvard Square is a is a great place. Couldn't have couldn't have asked for a better undergraduate experience. So it sounds like uh, you continued, you know, in the numbers direction. You know, obviously you did applied mathematics there, and the uh, numbers seemed to be your thing. And uh, you felt that numbers in New York City, in Wall Street you know, was the best way to really, um, you know, take advantage of your uh, passion there, you know, for numbers. So why Wall Street out of all things? You know, how was that, uh, you know, thought process? And then also how did you end up landing, you know, working at Citigroup? Yeah, so uh, that, that, that was, you know, that, that progression is exactly why I wanted to come to the U.S. for college. Uh, when I when I applied, I thought I kind of knew what I wanted to do. I thought I wanted to be a computer science graduate. I thought I wanted to go to graduate school, get a PhD in computer science, and uh, basically focus on theoretical CS for the rest of my life. And you know, junior year of college, I kind of discovered that that's not really my thing. And uh, you know, academic research is not really my thing. And uh, had I been in India, I don't know what my options would have been at that time. But given that I'm, I, I was here, I basically went and you know spoke to our uh, spoke spoke to my academic advisor. I said, "This is this is kind of where I am. Uh, I, this is my coursework so far, and I'm not really interested in in pursuing the career path or the academic path that I had thought I did. So what do I do?" And he said, "Well, why don't you take a few courses in a bunch of different things that." sound interesting and maybe figure out what else uh, is interesting to you. And so uh, it was very fortunate, again, that I was at Harvard because Harvard Business School uh, has these uh, courses that you can take as an undergrad. And so I ended up taking uh, two classes that, that were very pivotal to how things moved for me. One was a, was a class on uh, finance theory, and the other was a class on game theory. And they both sounded very exciting. and uh, I took both in the hope of figuring out whether I liked them, and I was hooked. Uh, game theory, it turned out, was not quite what I had expected it to be, but finance theory was exactly what I wanted it to be. And so uh, it started there. I, from there, I ended up getting an internship my, you know, the, the summer after my junior year with Bear Stearns, and I worked on uh, financial modeling of interest rates. And uh, it all, it, it was exactly what, what was of interest to me at the time. So that was my entry into a, a world that was different from the traditional engineering uh, computer science world that I had envisioned. And uh, the first time I came to New York City, it, it was just uh, magical for me. I'd never seen anything like it. And I felt instantly felt at home. And I wanted to be here. So uh, a, a large part of it was just like I wanted to be in New York City. 
and I wanted to be in finance. And what was it like scaling through the ranks? Because you ended up making it to managing director at Citigroup, and you were there for about 12 years. Uh, you became there the co-head of North America Securitized Products Trading. So what was it like, you know, scaling through the ranks, corporate America, the red tape, internal politics, you know, especially at a company so big? How was it like? So I think, uh, you know, when I joined, I didn't join Citigroup. I joined what was a, a, a company called Solomon Brothers. And Solomon Brothers was, was a pure bond trading firm, right? They, 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 it, was, it was a relatively small bond trading firm. They were one of the pioneers of a lot of the uh, structures that are, that are commonplace today and were even commonplace back, back by the time I started. Uh, but it was, in many ways, that was my introduction to a pure meritocracy where people really didn't care about, you know, where you came from, what you looked like. The entire focus was, was on making money, was on P&L. And uh, it, I, was, I was surrounded by some of the smartest people that I had met up until then uh, because it attracted a very, very high caliber crowd. And, uh, and so to your point, there really wasn't much of politics. Uh, it, it was all about uh, how well you did it was all about how well you did your job and and I was uh, again fortunate enough to be in a group uh, which which is the Securitized products trading group um, which was extremely multicultural extremely international uh, we had people from all over the world and uh, it you know I, I I just clicked so I in in many ways I, I found I was one of those lucky few that that found something that I really enjoyed doing pretty much right after I, I, I left college. So then, so then let's talk about Citigroup. You know, it comes to 2008, obviously a very difficult time, you know, in the economy at that point uh, with the financial crisis. And that's pretty much the moment where the idea of venturing into the world of entrepreneurship, you know, like really starts knocking. I mean, your whole career, that's all you knew, corporate America you know, being, you know, at big financial institutions. I mean, all of a sudden, one day waking up and handing your resignation letter, I'm sure it was frightening, to say the least. What Walk us through that incubation process on, on how you started thinking about it and, and, and what happened. Yeah, so let me take a little bit of a step back. Um, you know, as I, as I said, I grew up in India. And uh, about eight years before I actually quit Citigroup, um, I had looked into doing something in India, and a lot of it came from the from 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 just the belief that that India was was on the move, right? So uh, right before, right after, actually, actually, right before the dot com bubble burst, right, uh, there was an enormous amount of activity in the internet space in India. And so uh, my partner and I at the time, uh, or or uh, Yuvraj, who's my partner today in my business, uh, we took a trip to India and we said, let's look around. Let's just look around and see what's happening. And, and uh, can we build, you know, can, can we build some kind of a credit or, or fixed income related business? Because that's what we knew up until then. And uh, we came away realizing that India wasn't ready yet for the kind of stuff that we had grown up doing in the U.S., that India was still a very much uh, an equity-focused uh, economy, 
And and so we came back, but it was always there in the back of our minds that India was something that we wanted to work with. Um, so over the next eight years, uh, as I continued working at Citigroup, uh, we would engage with fixed income transactions in India. And so uh, at some point, it appeared to us, as we would see transactions that were offered in India, it would appear to us that the pricing of risk was was not commensurate with, with the actual amount of risk that was in these transactions, right? That, that you were getting paid a lot more to put on the same kind of trades in India as you would get paid to do in the U.S. And that was something that we found intriguing. So what I mean is, you know, corporate bonds in India or, or just, uh, you know, private loans in India and the private credit market, those were priced at, in some cases, what we felt was like hundreds of basis points above where they would be in, a, in an equivalent risk-adjusted market that was more developed. And so it, it looked interesting, but we were obviously busy with our work and, and uh, didn't really have time to dig deeper into it until 2008, right? 2008 comes, we have obviously a, a global financial crisis brewing, in fact, in the middle of one. Um, Citigroup is, in, is right in the heart of it. And at the time, it just felt that, okay, we could just continue working in this ecosystem and maybe have no regrets. But at the same time, it felt like it would be a real shame if 20 or 30 years from now, uh, India became this real player in the, in, in the credit market, the global credit markets. And if we, with our background, had zero role to play in it. And so we said, okay, well, given that uh, things are looking not that great in, here in the U.S., why don't we go take a look at what's happening in India? And so we spent several months in 2008, again, canvassing the market and figuring out that there was a real opportunity now that didn't exist back in 2000, 2001, when we'd lost it, it? And, and that the real opportunity consisted of the private credit market. And the private credit market in India, uh, you know, the, the, the public credit markets in India were very underdeveloped and in fact still continue to be pretty underdeveloped. And uh, India had at the time a real need for private debt. And so it made all the sense in the world for us to then try to build something in the private credit markets in India. And so when we left in 2008, that was, that was the focus. The focus was that uh, there, there is a real need for private credit. Uh, just to give you some numbers, uh, you know, most economies, most developed economies, private credit to GDP tends to run anywhere between 150% and, you know, 250, 270% of GDP. Um, developing markets are, you know, high double digits, 70, 80, 90% to, you know, 150, 170%. That's kind of the norm. Uh, India, back when we looked at it, was in the mid-40s, right? It was 45% of GDP. So it just felt like it could use a lot more credit and that it needed a lot more credit to achieve the goals that it had set for itself. And that's how we, we said, okay, this is something that we're going to take a shot at. Hey, guys, so pardon the interruption here. So I got to tell you that, you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. 
And it's very hard. And already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back then when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process, whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Severson, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of um, a cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com. And we would love to take a look at helping you out. So then when you said there's something that we got to take a shot at, what happened after? Um, so uh, we, we studied the market in terms of how do we do this? Do we set up a fund? Do we, you know, do, do, we, do we buy bonds? Do we lend money to individual companies? And after a bunch of research, we came to the conclusion that the only real, the, the, the really scalable, safe way of doing this was to actually be onshore in India, to actually have your own company that's regulated by the central bank in India, that's the Reserve Bank of India. And there are only two kinds of entities that have the ability to do that. One is either you get a banking license uh, or you have what's called a non-bank finance company license. And uh, given the hurdles to acquiring a banking license, which the RBI rarely, if ever, gives uh, fresh ones, uh, we went for an NBFC license, the non-bank finance company, and we set that up 2008. Late 2008 is when we got the NBFC license, and we started lending in early 2009. And as I said, the, the first, uh, the, for the first several years of what we did was uh, lend money to real estate. So what ended up being the business model of DMI finance? I mean, for the people that are listening to get it, how do you guys make money? Uh, so we have, we have equity holders who own the equity of the company. Uh, we, we have uh, credit lines from banks, from capital markets. So we lever the balance sheet with, with borrowings. And then we lend that money out. We lend that money out. Uh, you know, today, we lend that out mostly to consumers. Uh, for uh, for consumer loans and consumer finance. But in 2009, when we started, we were lending almost 100% to uh, companies. So in 2016 is when you decided to make the jump into consumer finance. Why, 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 why was that the case? What happened? So, yes. So 2016 is when we made the jump to consumer finance. And uh, what happened was uh, a, a significant change in the underlying infrastructure of India. So if you think of what, what the barriers to entry in consumer finance are, uh, especially in a country like India, uh, there are several barriers, first of all. But the primary ones are uh, KYC is a huge problem, right? Uh, know your customer. It's, it's a big problem uh, because you have to spend so much time and money and effort to validate documents, right? Somebody comes to you and say, this is who I am. Uh, 
right? This is my, what, what in India is called a permanent account number, a PAN number, right? Uh, they show you their PAN card. You can't take it on face value that this is a valid PAN card. You have to actually go through the process of validating the PAN card, make sure it's, uh, it's a genuine PAN card, right? Somebody comes to you and says, these are my bank statements. You can't take it on face value. These are valid bank statements. You have to actually figure out, are these genuine? Are, have they been doctored? Is it even from, from, from you know, uh, has the bank even actually issued this, right? Um, so KYC historically has been a, a big pain point. And uh, that has, you know, not being able to solve KYC has been a, a source of losses due to fraud, right? So now typically in, in credit, you're really hoping, right? You're really hoping that you're not dealing with fraud because it's, it's very hard to identify fraud and protect against it. You're hoping that you can, you can rely on the information that you have and make a credit decision, right? So your, your core uh, expertise is on credit underwriting and not on fraud detection. But a large part of your losses come from fraud and not because you underwrote bad credit. So historically, when you, when you look at consumer finance companies in India and businesses, a lot of them did not succeed because of fraud issues, right? So that's, that's one barrier to entry, right? Which is if, if it takes you so much time, money, and effort to solve for fraud, then how much, like how, how, how do you protect yourself against that? The second barrier to entry is how do you acquire customers? And customer acquisition in a country like India, which you know for the longest time had, was data dark, was had had very low uh, internet penetration, was physical customer acquisition. You have to have you have to have uh, physical br branches of your business so that people could walk in and apply for a loan, right? And now when somebody comes in and walks in and applies for a loan with a big stack of documents and big stack of paper, then you need a lot of people to process that application. So again, the problem then becomes is that there is a there, there is a minimum loan size that you need to address because the cost of originating the loan is so high, right? You're 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 solving for fraud, you're solving for KYC, you're solving for origination, and you're solving for all this manpower that's needed. You're solving for a physical network, and you're solving for all this manpower that's needed. Now all of that, all of that in some ways changed in 2015. And the reason it changed in 2015 is that in 2015, uh, the new government that came in, the NDA government led by uh, the current prime minister, uh, Mr. Modi, they embraced what had already been in the works, which was a biometric-based digital identity, right? It's called Aadhaar in India. And it is the base layer of what is now called India Stack. And India Stack is something which is unique in its in, in its way in in the entire world which is that it is a very comprehensive digital public infrastructure so layer one of india stack is identity okay, 1.4 billion indians have a digital identity by which you can be identified accurately in a matter of seconds right uh, now this was becoming tough that is the that is the case today in 2015 is, is when we first realized that this was likely to be the future. And, and so we took a step back and said, okay, if identity is no longer a problem, right? So that identity fraud 
can largely be eliminated, how would you build a consumer finance business for the future? And when we looked around and we looked at the competition, we said that is not how you would build it for the future. Now, typically, if you are trying to set up a new finance, uh, new consumer finance company, and you're trying to compete against large incumbents who have significant distribution, right? It takes an enormous amount of money. It takes an enormous amount of effort and large manpower to make that happen. We got very lucky in some sense that we identified very early on that this was not going to be the way of the future. And as a result, we had the luxury of being able to build something from the ground up that did not rely on legacy systems. So we built our entire consumer finance business to be completely API-driven. So uh, API being application process interface or application programming interface. And uh, we, built it, we built it with the intention that people could apply for a loan completely digitally on their smartphones. So the other thing to keep in mind is that India was starting to also become uh, you know, smartphone rich in terms of the ownership and dissemination of smartphones. At the same time, uh, Reliance Geo, which is now the largest telecom company in India, was on the verge of launching what was effectively uh, free data. So uh, broadband, Wi-Fi, smartphones, and digital identity were, were all coming together in 2015, 2016 in a way that would revolutionize consumer finance and a lot of other things, but we were focused on consumer finance. And that was the impetus for us uh, moving into consumer finance in 2016. So you guys have raised quite a bit of money. How much capital have you guys raised to date? Uh, so across all our businesses, and our businesses comprise, uh, you know, the NBFC, which is GMI Finance, that today does mostly consumer lending. Uh, we have a housing finance company that does uh, mortgage origination and, and uh, has a mortgage portfolio. And we have what's called an AIF, or an alternative investment fund, uh, which is a family of third-party capital funds that we invest largely today in real estate private equity. And so across those three platforms, we've raised about uh, $1.5 billion. And why haven't you raised from VCs or PE firms? So we have tended to stay away from VCs and PE firms uh, because we, have, we believe that we have a longer time horizon in how we are thinking about our business than a typical VC or a PE firm is willing to accept. Right? So uh, they have fund life constraints. Uh, they have return constraints. And we are a lending business by and large. And we are trying to build something that we believe or we hope, not we believe, but we hope uh, will be around for decades. And so we are building it in that way, right? We are not building it to IPO in three years. We are not building it to go from Series A to Series B to Series C. Uh, we are building it such that we reach the kind of scale and we reach the kind of reach uh, that we would like to have in 5, 10, 15, 20 years. Right. And that kind of a time scale is not necessarily compatible with what venture capital firms are looking for and what P firms are looking for. And so we really wanted to have long term end LP capital, uh, you know, uh, endowments, pension funds, insurance companies, family offices, 
And we were fortunate that we, we met the right kind of investors early on who chose to stay with us and grow with us uh, over the last 15 years. Amazing. Now, you've been pushing this now on your way to 16 years. I mean, 16 years pushing a startup is in dog years, right? I mean, in corporate, uh, compared to corporate America, I guess. All these years now, imagine I was able to put you into a time machine, you know, incredible lessons learned. And I bring you back in time, back in time to that moment where you were, you know, still a city group wondering what would be a world where you could, you know, dive in and do something on your own. And let's say you had the opportunity of giving a, a piece of advice to your younger self about launching a business. What would that be and why, given what you know now? Um, I think. I, I would I would break that up into into two pieces if I think about it, right? Then the two pieces are um, what did we when we started? What did we get right in hindsight, even if some of it was luck? And what did we get wrong, right? So let let me start with the with the uh, elements that we that we got right and that I think is very important to keep in mind because we in some ways we lucked in. So I would say one, only do a startup if you are really, really passionate about it, right? The, the, the likelihood of startups succeeding is, is pretty low. Um, there are always, there are always days when things look extremely bleak. There are nights and, and, and there may be, you know, many consecutive nights when you cannot sleep. And if you are not, passionate about what you're doing and you're in it because of, of you know, maybe it's purely financial motivations or, or maybe it's you're defining success, however you're defining it, uh, it, it, it is going to be tough, right? So I would say that only jump into it if you feel extremely passionate about it. Um, don't listen to too many people. Um, everyone is going to have an opinion, but you need to have your own conviction as to why you're doing something. And you need to have enough of a conviction that when when your assumptions are challenged, you are able to stand up to it. Uh, when things don't look like they're going the way you thought they would, you still have enough of a conviction in your underlying thesis that you can go through the hard times and, and make it through to the other end. Have at least one co-founder. I strongly urge people who are, who are going into startups and thinking of doing it by themselves, I strongly urge them to rethink and have at least one co-founder that you trust completely. Because as I said again, when things aren't going bad, uh, things are not going well, you can't talk to your employees because they are your employees. You can't share your insecurities with your family because your family is tired of hearing them and, and doesn't really want to hear about it anymore. And you need somebody who's in the trenches with you and that's going to be your, your co-founder. So make sure you have that. So I think by and large, those things we did get right, even though we, we didn't set out to get them right. There were a couple of things that we, we did not get right and that I think are, are extremely important and I would change if I, if I were to do something fresh, right? Uh, one is most of life is a, dest is, is a journey, not a destination. So learn to enjoy the journey. Um, I think we you know, we, we did not enjoy the process of getting here as much as I wish we had, 
right? Uh, because even when things are not going well, we should be able to enjoy the fact that we are going through an experience that not that many people have in their lifetime. And if we go in with that kind of a mentality and that attitude, I think that the journey itself becomes a lot more pleasant. And the likelihood that you hit your destination becomes that much higher. And on a more prosaic level, I think uh, we didn't hire enough people early on. Um, because I think as a founder, there's a tendency to, to end up doing a lot of things yourself because you start out by making, doing everything yourself. You're, you're, you're bringing the coffee, you're, you're doing the photocopy, you're making the phone calls, you're doing everything yourself. And the transition from that to a company, which is actually hopefully has the capacity to continue without the founders, that transition is a hard transition and it becomes even harder the longer you wait to institutionalize some processes, right? So for instance, I wish we had hired a more, like I wish we had hired uh, a big HR function a lot earlier than we did, right? Because as you grow, it's okay when you have 20, 10 people, 20 people, but when you are 50 people, 70 people, you need an HR function. And if you don't already have one, then at that point, it, it, it becomes harder to keep the company culture together, right? So focus on, on, on hiring early, and focus on hiring the best people that you can. And don't worry about the cost too much. Amazing. So I guess for the people that are listening, that would love to reach out and say hi, Shiv, what is the best way for them to do so? Uh, I think LinkedIn is probably the best way to do that. You say enough. Well, hey, Shiv, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. It has been an honor to have you with us. Thanks, Alejandro. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.